Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to 2 Peter chapter 1. Three weeks ago, we finished up our last lesson in our series on Joshua. And uh, several weeks ago, as I was studying those last lessons for Joshua, and also at the same time as we are in the Ephesians series, uh, I began to think about the problem of discouragement. And I preached a couple of messages where I mentioned discouragement, especially in the Ephesians series. And if you remember, I told you that that's one of the wiles of the devil. The devil tries to to discourage us, and sometimes our discouragement can actually cause us to slip into sin. I very much appreciate the message that Brother Dalton preached last Sunday night because that just really kind of dovetails into what I have to speak to you about tonight. But I recognized... Uh, after those messages that I preached and, and we talked about discouragement a few times, that there are uh, many people in our church that are facing tough times. Uh, some people are into bad financial problems. There are health problems, family issues, and really some things that have come up that perhaps you never even thought that you would ever have to face. And Christians get into this place where so many things are going wrong that they think, is it ever going to stop? I mean, when will it stop? And it's very easy to see why people would become discouraged. Well, as I thought about that more, I began to think about God's promises. And whenever you decide that you're going to put your hope and your confidence in anything other than God, then you're going to be disappointed. If it's your health, that will let you down. The economy will let you down. Friends, family will let you down. There's only one thing in all the world that stays constant, that never fails, and that will always be there when you need help, and that's God himself. And that's who you have to place your confidence in. Well, tonight we're going to talk about promises that God gives, and uh, Peter has something to say about promises. So let's look in Second Peter uh, chapter 1. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read. We're going to read these first four verses of this first chapter. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the services so far tonight and singing by the choir, talking about the second coming of Christ, then the song that we just heard, Lord, that uh, all of our confidence, all of our hope must be placed in Christ alone. You never fail us. Help us, Lord, as we think about promises tonight that we would have our confidence in you and you would help to dispel all of our discouragement. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first part of verse number 4 is the text for tonight's message. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. One thing you'll notice about reading Peter, that he has a penchant for the word promises. Try saying that five times. Peter has a penchant for promises. It's if that it's if that's a little tongue twister there. But seven times, uh, Peter mentions things that are precious. He said that our faith is precious. The blood of Christ is precious. He said Jesus is a precious living stone. He said he is a precious cornerstone. 
He said, Jesus himself is precious to us who believe. And he also said that when we have the right kind of spirit in us, when we have a meek and gentle spirit, that that is precious in the sight of God. Well, this statement that we read tonight here in this fourth verse is the seventh time that Peter talks about something that's precious. And so I think when Peter uses the word precious here uh, to speak about the promises of God, that this word precious has been put into some very good company. Precious is Jesus. Precious is our faith. Precious is the blood of Christ. And certainly precious, is, precious are the promises that God gives us. So this is a very important word as, as Peter uses it here. And he calls it precious. But then he goes a little bit further than that because he puts something on top of it. He says, these promises are exceeding great. In the Greek language, the word great is actually mega. And so he's saying here that the promises of God are mega promises. But then he even goes further than that. He says they are exceeding great. They are exceeding mega promises. Now, why is it that Peter is talking about promises here? Well, if you read a little bit further on into Second Peter, you'll, you'll see that Peter is speaking about the second coming of Christ. And one of the primary themes that he has is that when Jesus comes back, that that will be the final dissolution of the world, and all the world would be burned up, and then God will create a new heaven and a new earth. In Second Peter 3, verse 13, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I really do believe that that is the key to being released from our discouragement. And that's that we need to look forward to this new heaven and the new earth that's coming. And the Bible says that in that place, righteousness dwells. There isn't a whole lot of righteousness in the world today. And that's really the crux of our whole problem. There is no righteousness. But the scriptures tell us that, that righteousness is the cure for us And one of these days, we're going to go to heaven. There's nothing but righteousness there. And so all troubles and and all discouragement will be completely over. We're going to take a few minutes tonight to see what the Bible says about God's promises. First, I want you to notice this evening the certainty of God's promises. John Bunyan, the 17th century Baptist preacher, said, The pathway of life is strewn so so thickly with the promises of God that it is impossible to take one step without treading upon one of them. It's easy to understand why John Bunyan would say that. There's some sources who say that there are over 7,000 promises in the Word of God. I read another source that said that there were 30,000 promises in God's Word. I don't really know what the disparity between those two figures are because I, I really haven't taken time to count all of the promises that are in the Bible. But I do know this, every one of God's promises is certain. And there's a reason for that. It's because Scripture says that God cannot lie. When Paul was writing to Titus, he wrote some encouraging words, and he said, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So truth, that's one of God's inherent attributes. It's impossible for God to lie. And you think about it, why would God lie? People lie today because they tried to gain an advantage over someone. But why would God ever need an advantage? I mean, I mean, he controls all things. When he speaks, uh, that's, that's the final word on everything. His word goes. So why would you ever have to lie when, when you can do that? So if God lied, it, it would actually impugn the sovereignty of God. We wouldn't be able to call him sovereign because that would mean there's something out of his control that would cause him for lying to become a necessity. But you never have to worry about God's promises because the sovereign God 
guarantees each and every promise. I don't think it's perhaps fortuitous that we sang that song tonight. Uh, Probably the Lord was right behind it when we sang, Standing on the Promises of God. The song said, Standing, Standing on the Promises of God my Savior. Standing, Standing, I'm Standing on the Promises of God. God doesn't fail, and so whenever God makes a promise, that is sure to happen. It's interesting that there is a a group called the Promise Keepers. Uh, These are a group of men that that, uh, promise to be faithful fathers, and they say they'll be faithful citizens, faithful servants of God. It's not my purpose tonight to deal with the validity of that group, but I will tell you this, that none of the Promise Keepers keep all of their promises. God is the only one who can keep all promises. God's the only one who's certain and able to do that. So if if there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible, I promise you we can't talk about all 7,000 tonight. So we're just going to look at just a few of God's certain promises. I think one of the best ones that we can start off with, or perhaps maybe the very best of all of God's promises, is that he promises to be present with us. Jesus promised that he would be present with us. Think for a moment about those disciples as they as they sat down with that to that last meal that they that they had with Jesus. Jesus had just delivered them some very sobering news. He said that one of you is going to betray me. So one one by one they went around the circle of their disciples, and each one of them said, "Is it I?" Peter says, "Is it I?" Uh, John says, "Is it I?" James says, "Is it I?" And on and on they go. Lord, is it I? And that was very sobering news because that was telling them Jesus is going to be betrayed. He'll be taken and crucified. And that means that they'll no longer have any personal fellowship with him. Well, then Jesus came back to them with a promise. He says in John 14, verses 16 and 17, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Jesus, of course, there is talking about the Holy Spirit. After Jesus left the world, he says the Holy Spirit will come as as an abiding promise. Well, at that very moment, I don't really think the disciples fully understood what Jesus meant because it was just a little while that Jesus was crucified, and once again, these disciples become a very somber, hopeless group. So they hadn't yet realized the power of the promise that Jesus gave. So Jesus was crucified, and then, of course, he arose from the dead. But then, after 40 days of appearing here upon the earth, Jesus comes back one more time with the promise. This is his last post-resurrection appearance. And he says in Matthew 28, and you know the Scripture well, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then the last sentence is a promise. He says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So there they have the promise once again. But now that promise is quickly fading as Jesus goes into heaven because Pentecost hasn't yet come. The Holy Spirit is not yet here. And so, not yet fully understanding what Jesus was talking about, they missed the presence of Jesus again. When he was here physically, then they had his presence. I mean, wherever he went and they went with him, they're in the presence of Jesus. But when Jesus went somewhere alone, then the disciples are not in his presence. But this is a promise that is so much better because when Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come, 
Jesus was actually living in them. So Jesus is in them now, and so there's no time, no matter where they are, day or night, no matter what adversity comes upon them, Jesus is always with him, with them. And that's the same promise that every believer here has tonight, that God has promised that he will be with you. And so when you trust Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you as an abiding presence, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit every day to face everything that you go through. And then the Bible also says that the personal experiences of Christ, having gone through all things that we experience, being tempted in all ways like we're tempted, Jesus is able to succor us, the Bible says. That means he understands us. He sympathizes. He knows exactly what we've been through. And so in every temptation, the Scripture says that Jesus is present with us. And so when those times of discouragement come, then we're able to say just like David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so the presence of Jesus with us, that is a certain promise. The next thing that we see here is that he promises to provide for us. Now, I mentioned that many folks are discouraged over financial problems. And really, you know, that's an earnest uh, consideration for, for young families today. The economy is bad right now, especially in this part uh, of, of California. Things are down. And, and folks wonder, how can I support my family what am I, where am I going to live? What am I going to do? How am I going to make it? And then our older folks, I mean, they're faced with the very same kinds of problems. They can no longer work, so the retirement check comes in, and, and it doesn't buy as much as it used to. Inflation eats that up. Social Security's not really a, much of a help. That's not the cure. And so we understand when people get in these times of discouragement. But the Bible also tells us that God will provide for us. The psalmist said, I have been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Now, that was a, a psalm that was written by David when he was in his old age. Basically, David says, you know, I'm an old man now. In all my days, I've never seen that God has forsaken any of his children and let them starve to death. Now, I did hear one person who said, well, yes, David was an old man. He had seen a lot of things, and he hadn't seen this, but that's because David had not seen everything. And... Perhaps there's some truth to that statement, some validity to it. But in mitigation of that fact, let me say there's a principle that's laid out. Remember Jesus said that the birds of the air, I mean, they don't worry about where they're going to get their food. They, they don't build barns and store up things for the future. They don't do it because God supplies everything that they need. He gives the daily food. So the teaching here is really not against prudent preparation. We need to do that. But it is against, uh, for daily dependence on God. So we're not to worry about things that are going to happen far off in the future as if God is unable to, to lead us there and take us through everything we go through. We must have this confidence that God is always able to provide. So it doesn't matter who it is and, and what kind of financial burdens that you have upon you. Other things that you see in your life, God's going to take care of you. You just have to trust him. Now, that brings me to another wonderful promise of God. Uh, it kind of goes right into this, that God promises to promote us. We're looking for the future, and something is going to happen in the future. James says that our, our lives here are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then passes away. We think about our lives in light of eternity. It really doesn't amount to very much at all. 
And so what we really have to do is keep this in mind. This life is short. And the moment that you start to put your focus on everything that's in this life, if your focus is right here, right now, the outlook's going to be bleak. And you will become discouraged. Now, now, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians to think oppositely of this. Don't think like that. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Can you imagine what Paul would have accomplished if he was always thinking about the present distress? Think of the things that Paul was going through. And he truly was in distress. Think about how that uh, Paul, when he preached, he he never did know that the next place that he went, that he wouldn't be beaten within an inch of his life. That's what happened at Lystra. He went and he preached the gospel there, and people didn't like what he had to say, so they stoned him. They They tried to kill him. They drug him out of the city, and they left him for dead. When you've been through tough times like that, and You've been stoned a few times. Getting up to preach the next day is not a very exciting prospect. And so he, you know, he could have been very discouraged about that. And he could say, well, I can't do it anymore because I know what's going to happen if I do. But Paul considered himself to be a soldier of the cross. And so he couldn't focus on those kinds of things. He had to focus on the calling that God gave. And Paul always knew this. Whatever happens in this life, I know for sure I'm going to be promoted to another level. Something else is coming. He wasn't ever anxious to hold on to this life. He said in Philippians 1, verse 23, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so if you become anxious for this life, and if your hope is just in this life, forget it, because you're going to be miserable. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians and talking about the resurrection from the dead, Basically, he put it this way. He said, if this life is all there is, and if the hope, if our hope is just centered in this life, and we have no hope of being promoted, we have no hope of being raised with Christ, then he said, we are the most miserable lot in all of the world. Thank the Lord for this. This is not all there is. Now, as I get older, I, I really think about this more and more. Uh, you know, all things being equal... If I live an average lifespan, I've got 15, maybe 20 years to go. And that's going to be the end of it. But, you know, I promise you, I, I'm not going out of this life kicking and screaming. I will gladly accept God's promotion. So I don't worry about health issues, and I don't worry about things that are going to happen here because I always know that God gives grace. If I live, there's grace to live, and if I die there's grace to die now you're sufficiently morbid right now let me say that let me just say this i mean you're thinking about how old i am and calculating the time i've got left but this is really the thing that that gives us joy in the present it's the thing you have to focus on that this life is not all there is and there is a promotion that's coming and so i cheerfully face tomorrow not worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. And I love the way that God enables songwriters to put this so well. There's one song that I love, and I guess most of you know it. It says, I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry over the future, for I know what Jesus said. And today I walk beside him, for he knows what lies ahead. 
He said, every step is getting brighter as the golden stairs I climb. Every burden's getting lighter. Every cloud is silver lined. There the sun is always shining. There no tear will dim the eye. At the ending of the rainbow where the mountains touch the sky. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. Promotion day is coming. And that's one of the exceeding precious promises of God. And folks, that is certain. Now, let's move on here because there's something else about promises that you need to know. Secondly, I want to talk to you about the conditions of God's promises. If I were speaking about grace tonight, I would tell you that God's grace is unconditional. If there were any conditions uh, placed upon God's grace, then we couldn't call it grace. If I were preaching about election tonight, I, I would tell you that election is unconditional. Many people believe it's conditional. But it is unconditional because it doesn't depend upon anything that I have ever done. God didn't choose me because of something he saw in me. So I'll say that God's grace, or God's election rather, is unconditional. If I was preaching about love, I would tell you this evening that God's love is unconditional. If I'm waiting for God's love, uh, that he sees uh, something lovable in me, I'll be waiting for a long, long time because that doesn't exist. And so God's love is is unconditional. There are no conditions placed upon it. But I'm not talking about grace tonight, and I'm not talking uh, about election. I'm not talking about about, uh, love. I'm preaching on God's promises, and God's promises come with conditions. There are two main conditions that are placed upon the promises of God. The first one is the faith to receive them. You must have the faith to receive them. So God has this promise, But in front of the promise, he puts a two-little-letter word that's very significant, and you can't skip over it. Everything hinges on that two-letter word, and it's the word if. Salvation is one of the promises of God that hinges on the word if. Jesus said in John 8, 24, I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins in your sins. The only time the point-blank question is asked in Scripture, what must I do to be saved? You know the answer to it. Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So we learn from that that the promise of salvation is conditioned on believing in Jesus Christ. That's the if. So that means that eternal life is conditioned on that if in John eight twenty four, And also what the scripture says in John three thirty six, it says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And so the biggest promise that God ever made was conditioned with that if. You must believe in him. And there's nobody who's ever going to be saved unless they express personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then it doesn't stop there. There's something else that goes with it because also... There is obedience. So along with faith, the promises of God are predicated upon obedience. So the second thing you have to have is obedience to claim the promise of God. Now, I don't be thinking wrongly here. Some of you be thinking, now, Pastor, what I'm getting from what you're saying right now is this. You're saying that I'm saved by grace. I'm saved uh, by my faith in Christ, by putting faith in him. But then I have to be obedient. And so I have to work to maintain my salvation. I'm not saying that at all. Never would I be preaching that. 
What I'm saying is that if you claim to have faith in Christ and it produces no obedience, then you have no right to claim the promise of God. You see, obedience is proof of saving faith. James put it this way. He said, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? And so I'm telling you that if you want the confidence to receive God's promises, you have to be obedient. Here's what happens. When you're not obedient to Christ, then you, you don't have the feeling that the promise is actually for you. So you must be obedient. Now, for instance, answered prayer. That's one of the things that God says is going to require some obedience. Jesus said, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. So if you're ever suffering from discouragement and you begin to pray and you're asking God to deliver you from your discouragement, what you have to do is make sure that every area of your life is squared away. You have to be sure that you're living in obedience. David said, as long as I'm harboring sin in my heart, God will not hear me. Several years ago, I I related a personal experience to you uh, that had to do with discouragement. This has been over 20 years ago, uh, back when I was in Kentucky and we were doing construction work. And we had a family business that we uh, we ran. Uh, We had a a, a small ready-mix concrete plant. And uh, we were were competing against the bigger concrete plants that were in Lexington, Kentucky. I don't know if you know anything about the delivery of concrete, but... uh, the profit margins are so low that the only way that you're ever going to make any money is just you just got to have to sell a lot of that stuff. I mean, you have to have high volume in concrete to make money. One of the problems with our business was that many of the builders in Lexington that we we're trying to sell concrete to, they were in deep hock to these larger concrete companies. And so what the concrete companies are doing, they were they were carrying the debt of the builders until they could sell their houses. So they told... these builders that we were trying to sell concrete to, and we're just, you know, getting started. If you buy your concrete from them, then we're calling in your debt. And what you're going to have to pay your debt before you sell your houses. Well, the builders didn't have any means of doing that, so they wouldn't buy concrete from us. Well, that put us in a serious hurt. We couldn't make, uh, uh, do the volume that was necessary to make us profitable. So we started to look for a buyer for our business. Months went by, and we were struggling, trying to sell what we could. And uh, things kept going down and down and down. And, and I got to the place, I thought, you know, there's just no way out of this. There's no way that we're going to survive it. So I prayed about it. I agonized about it until finally I just said, there's no hope for this. We're just going to give up. We're going to lose everything. Well, as I was praying and reading my Bible, I came across a verse of Scripture that I'd read many, many times before. And it's one of those times, you know, you've read a scripture, you've read it, and you've read it, and you've read it, but you don't really see it. Well, this time I was reading it, and God allowed me to see it. This this is a scripture in 1 John 3, 22. Very simple. It says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, what I got from that was that I have to stay faithful, I must stay obedient. Whatever I know that I'm supposed to be doing, I've got to keep doing that, and then God's going to bless. To make a long story short, we did find a buyer. Someone bought the 
concrete plant out, absolved us of all the debt that was in it. And uh, the next year, I decided to go on business, out in business on my own. In that next year, I made more money than I'd ever made at any time before in my life. We built a house that was three times larger than the house that we were living in. And I attributed all of that to this verse of Scripture. Because when I read that, I took that Scripture, I wrote it down in the front of my Bible, and I claimed that as my verse. Now, what I'm not doing here tonight, I am not preaching to you health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I don't believe that. I'm just saying to you that faithful obedience is the way to make God's promises real to you. You have to stay in the obedience. So, as again, I said a moment ago, you can't really claim that promise. If you're not living in obedience and not faithfully surrendered, you never fully understand that the promise is you, for you. It doesn't seem real. But when you faithfully obey God, you know you can read that promise and you say, that's going to come true for me. So I'm telling you, in all of your troubles and all of your discouragement, when that sets in, perhaps the first thing that you need to do, check up and see if you're praying about it properly. But also, is there something in my life that's hindering God's blessing? Is there some sin there that God is withholding answering that prayer? And so when you've checked it all out and you've examined it, you find out, I am serving the Lord, then you can be sure of this. You can claim the promise. I think that's what Paul was talking about. When he talked about being content in whatever state that he was, he said, though I'm poor, though I'm hungry, though there's all these things that are going on in my life, I have learned to be content. And I believe it came from his faithful obedience. So you need to consider that. The promise is conditioned upon that obedience. Now, the third thing we want to talk about here is confession to maintain God's promises. Now, once again, I'm telling you that, that by maintaining, I do not mean that you have to do anything further in order to make sure that your salvation is secure. I'm not saying that, that uh, eternal life is predicated upon things that you do here because absolutely it is not. It's a settled question. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. Eternal life is yours. What I am saying, though, is that your contentment and getting out of discouragement will will require some maintenance in this life. In order to have God's uh, the confidence in the promises, you have to do some house cleaning, cleaning from time to time. Christians that, that don't maintain fellowship with God will remain discouraged. There's nothing more miserable than a Christian that's out of fellowship with God. God will not let you be happy. You can't be content as long as you're out of fellowship. Now remember here, we're not talking about relationship. We're talking about fellowship with God. John writes in 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a lot of arguing about 1 John 1 9. Uh, people say, well, that's talking about a lost person. And if it's true, then, of course, the verse is true. There's nothing wrong with that. If you applied it to a lost person, it would be absolutely true. When you confess your sins, God will cleanse you of those sins. And I might add to that that when we talk about repentance, we're speaking of repentance of all of our sins. Even though some people preach that you don't really have to confess all of your sins to be saved, repent of all sin, you absolutely do. Confession that does not have repentance involved in it doesn't really understand what confession is all about. So if it's talking about a lost person, then fine, that's okay, the Scripture is true. But I don't actually think that the verse is talking about lost people. If you read the context of 1 John, you find out that, that John is speaking to very discouraged Christians. 
If you go over to chapter 5, you'll, you'll find out there, uh, you read it and you see how many times he uses the word know. What he's trying to get across is you can know that you actually have eternal life. So he says to discourage Christians, uh, you know, you can know this. I mean, don't look at the outward circumstances. Don't look what's happening around you. You have eternal life. That is a promise from God. So I think that what John is saying in 1 John 1 verse 9, he says, you don't have the assurance that you need. Perhaps you don't have the confidence that you want because there's unconfessed sin. You've been hiding it. You've been denying it. But now is the time for you to fess up and get things right with God. And then God will forgive you your sins and he'll restore the confidence. And so what he's saying is, like that, presto, you trust God, you house clean, you confess the sin, and confidence in all of God's promises are restored. So every one of us needs to do that. We need house cleaning from time to time. And to the degree that our spiritual house becomes dirty, to that degree, you're going to lose bits and pieces of your, of your joy, your happiness, your security, your confidence, your encouragement. Bit by bit, it's going to go away from you until you've confessed and cleaned out everything that's in your life. So don't ever forget the conditions when you talk about God's promises. Now let me close the message tonight with this. God's promises reveal God's character. The promises of God reveal to us what a truly awesome God that he is. You know that God never said that he would save us based upon anything that we were going to do? I mean, uh, he gives us his grace He has no obligation to us at all. God's not obligated to save any person in this world. The only thing that we really have a right to claim to, we have a right to claim eternal punishment in the fires of hell because that's what we really ought to expect. But God in his mercy and his grace, he came and he saved us. He sent us a savior. So God's character shows us that he's good to us. Well, I would tell you eternal life is certainly good. And, and you wouldn't have any argue with, argument with me about that. We all know eternal life is good. But this is looking at a different aspect of this. It's not talking about eternal life that's way off in the future. God's promises ensure that we can be happy right now in the present life in which we're living. And so if you remember back there in verse 3, if you look at that again, it says that God will give us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And one of the things that pertains to this life is that Peace and contentment needs to be a part of your life. Your present salvation, God is concerned with as well as the future salvation. So the promises of God are given to us to achieve present contentment. So I would tell you, if you're discouraged, start to think about God's promises. Don't be entangled with the things of this world and keep your focus on everything that's here. We need to put our focus in another place and think about the promise that God has out there for us. Colossians 3 says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And there is the real secret to discouragement. Keep your eyes and keep your focus just like the song that they said that sang tonight, keep it on Christ alone. Because the minute that you take your eyes off him, everything is going to fail around you. He's the only one who never fails. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for exceeding great and precious promises. 
Lord, I pray for any Christian here tonight who has been suffering from discouragement, troubles going on in their life, and many people have to go through this. I just pray, Lord, that you would help them to think more about promises, think more about Christ alone, think about what's coming. And, Lord, I pray that you might restore them and give them encouragement to go through this life and to be a great witness for you. Bless our people tonight, Lord, in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's